With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Artisan is an overused word these days. Artisan bagels, artisan lollipops, artisan lemonade. Hell, McDonald's has an artisan burger. Chris Christensen is an artisan, but his surfboards restore integrity to the term. A shaper shaper, Chris can build you a surfboard start to finish, including the fins, and it will have the precision of a German sports car, the style of an Italian suit, the craftsmanship of a Scottish cooper, the street cred of Banksy, and the subtle marketing genius of Madison Avenue. In this episode of the Boardroom Show podcast, Chris discusses the imported versus domestic surfboard question, the business of board building, surfing in Seal Beach, near-death shaping experiences, trust funders at Seaside Market, big wave heroes, big wave surfboards, early shaping inspirations, golf, Laird Hamilton, the San Diego Fish, surfboard marketing, and much more. Let us begin. Welcome, everybody, to the Boardroom Podcast. I'm your host, Scott Bass. And sitting across from me is my friend Chris Christensen. And Chris, of course, a legendary surfboard shaper and um, quite a craftsman in his own right. Um, Chris, welcome. Thanks for having me, Scott. You got to get closer to the mic, Chris. Well, I'm trying to film this for my Instagram. <laughs> okay. Fair enough. <laughs> um, Let's just start with, you've had some recent exploits. Do You went to Spain. You want to just give me some insight on your fun trip to Spain to the Pucas shop? Yeah, I just returned from uh, Spain a couple of weeks ago. Um, Pucas is uh, kind of a world-renowned distributor for uh, mainly surfboards and bikinis. They started in 1973, um, and they distribute Lost, Channel Islands, They have their own label, Pucas, and they just brought on uh, Bob McTavish and myself about three years ago. And um, as a lot of people know that last year the factory burnt down. While I was there, I was actually the second to the last person to get out, which uh, was definitely, I I still have weekly reoccurring nightmares about it. It It was a pretty heavy situation for me, but thankfully we all made it out okay, and um, I was there to see the new plans for the new factory, and it was neat to see that the government got behind them. You know, they have hundreds of employees um, from all over the place, from, you know, employees from France, employees from Spain, England, Portugal, Brazil, uh, the States, Australia. Um, it's just 
it's a really neat way to see kind of what the surfing world is all under that roof you know you have so many um different craftsmen from all over the world there so tell me a little bit about the harrowing part though so you were in there and there was a fire and you were the last one out can you give me some more insight and like what went down like did you smell smoke or what how did it go down so i didn't know the fire started and the old factory was huge it was three stories um i'm gonna guess is around thirty thousand square feet um so it was my first day shaping. I'd already been there for a few days, and I was getting kind of jet lag. It was about 4 in the afternoon, and it was a heat wave. It was 43 degrees Celsius, which is rare there, which it's, that's over 100 degrees. And there was a lot of electric power outages that day. So anyways, I had, um, <clears throat> I had a brand-new respirator on with fresh cartridges, and I was wearing my Bose noise-canceling headphones. And what saved my life was my jet lag i was getting kind of tired and i just finished a shape and i was in this back shaping room no windows on the second floor no exits on the second floor and anyways i went outside to rack the board i just shaped and i laid it on the rack and i was kind of looking around because my shaping room was adjacent to the fin room and usually there's about five or six guys always standing around there any time of the day and i'm looking around like wow where did everyone go (laughs) And then I took my headphones off. I was, had music on full pop, and I'm already deaf as a door. And, um, and then I heard the fire alarms, and I'm like, what the heck is going on? And then I pulled my mask off of my nose, and then I could smell the smoke. And then right then and there, I'm like, whoa, there's a fire. And I'm no stranger to fires, too, as a lot of people know. I lost my house to a fire three years ago. So... I immediately started running, and luckily it was my third trip there. The place was like a maze, so I knew my way around there. Had that been the first time I was ever at the factory, I wouldn't have found my way out. But So I ran out, and I ran around the corner, and then I saw the flames, floor to ceiling, all the offices. I had a bag of clothes there. I brought all my bag there because I was switching hotel. And I went to the stairs that were by the offices, and those were, that was on fire, floor to ceiling. So then I knew there was windows upstairs. And so I ran up to the third floor thinking I was just going to jump out of the window and got to the third floor and it was on fire, floor to ceiling. And right then there's a, there's a laminating room up there. And that's when, as I was running up, the, the laminator Sharky, his name was Sharky, he came running, kind of running by me. (laughs) (laughs) He didn't stop. And he didn't stop. And I could hear everyone screaming our name from outside. Apparently, everyone had been evacuated for at least eight minutes. Oh, it was just man. Sharky and I. And there's a little office girl that was brave enough. She comes running in. And I, as I'm running down from the third floor, I see her yelling at me. And I'm like, whoa. And then I, <laughs> we all just started running. And she was brave enough to, like, she just kept triple checking everyone was out. And then I, I had a bad knee, and I remember I slipped and I fell. And then she started running real fast because the, the smoke and the fire was coming towards us. And she ran over my back as I was on the ground. And then I got up, and then we just charged and that's crazy. got out of there. And I launched. I just jumped where the there was like a little mezzanine. And instead of running, they ran down the stairs, and they pulled it off. And I just chose a jump. And I think all the snowboarding I did, well, I was able to stomp it, land, how, how far of this of jump was this, this? This wasn't this is a second story jump or like a ten foot it was jump? Second story, it's probably like I don't know, eighteen feet. Yeah, 
and I got out and the owner, I remember the owner, Miguel, he's a big guy. He's a founder of Pucas. Um, he just comes up to me. He thought, he thought we were dead and yeah. the guy's as big as a bear and he just grabbed me and would let go of me and he was bawling, crying. And, and, you know, he's also watching his, you know, 40 something years burned down. And then we just stood there and probably within three to five minutes, it's hard to calculate time, but within three to five minutes after I got out, the whole place collapsed. Wow. And, uh, and when it did that, we all started running further, further away from the building. And of course it was real toxic and everything. And, you know, and at the time that it, I wasn't, that wasn't the scariest moment for me. The scariest moment was two days later when all the what ifs start circling your head. And then I, I mean, I, I had a hard time keeping myself from just getting on the plane and going home. You yeah. know, and I was like, wow, two fires within two years. But at the end of the day, what, nobody miraculously got hurt. Yeah. And, um, I just saw the plans. I met, they actually had me meet when I was just there in Spain, they had me meet with their architect to make, make sure, sure all the second story. Exit. Well, <laughs> I, that was the first thing I looked at is all the emergency row exits and, you know, they want to make sure all the, the shaping rooms are in the right place, the sanding rooms. They wanted my, you know, what I thought of it. And yeah. gosh, man, this new factory, is, it's beautiful. It's going to be the best, hands down, the best surfboard factory in the world. Killer. Hands down. And I, I'm the first thing I did do, though, I remember calling my manager, John, a few days after the fire. And I said, hey, I want you to count all the fire extinguishers we got, et cetera, et cetera. And when I got back, I I put myself in each position of the of my factory picture and I was one of my employees okay if a fire broke out there and I'm here how do I get out if, you know and every so I spent about $1,800 on additional fire extinguishers and and Grant we had already like 17 fire extinguishers in my factory yeah so now we got over 40 yeah because every I mean there's the every bathroom has one every office every corner of every room there's two you know so if you're in the back of the room and the fire's in the front of the room you can get out you know and so Cool. And it's important to have your house too. It's, um, you know, fire extinguishers aren't for putting the fire out. It's just for getting you out. Yeah. Wow. That's great. I mean, I remember you telling me about this, but I don't think I got the full long version. I don't think I understood the depth of how close you were. I know you said, dude, it was close, but, um, that's, that's, I'm, that's a fascinating story, frankly. Yeah. Luckily we all beat the black smoke because once that gets you, it's pretty hard to get out of that. Right. So this latest trip, um, I guess you shaped a bunch of boards and you looked at the new factory that's going to be opening probably next year or whatever. And um, that's something you do a lot of, right? You do a lot of traveling around. I know you go to Japan a lot. You go to the Pukas factory. Mm-hmm. Are there other places that you go to do, um, what do you call it, shaping excursions? Yeah, shaping trips. Um, yeah, I go to Australia, Bali. Um, I work with On Board down in Australia. They're in my distributors. They, do, they also do Channel Islands as well. They do Simon Anderson, um, Hayden Lewis, and a couple other local labels. And then they added me right around the same time as Pukas. Um, and they handle all of what we call Australasia, which is Australia, New Zealand, and in the Southeast Asia, everywhere except for Japan, more or less. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, do it in Europe and just out of Pukas. And then Pukas handles my sales from basically from Sweden to Morocco. And so when you go to Australia, you just set up shop somewhere where on boards like, Hey, they, this is a great shaping facility for you. Is it like near Byron or something or on the Gold Coast? They or? got, they have two locations. So they have one location in Sydney, uh, in the Mona Val area, North, North beach area of Sydney. And, and that's sort of like old school 
board building. That's kind of like the South Bay of LA for, for you and I, right? Like it that's is. That's where it all started. Yeah, in the it 50s is. And yeah, yeah. And, uh, and I remember the first time I went there, they're like, hey, we'll have you. You can use Simon Anderson's room. <laughs> and it was the first trip I went with on board. I, they said, bring your tent. We're going camping and Simon's coming. <laughs> and I'm like, yes. And, really? And uh, so, yeah, literally, I landed. And then the next day, they threw me. We went to this, we went camping at this place, Treachery, and the waves were pumping. It was so fun. And yeah, I never really met, I met Simon in passing and all that. But yeah. I remember reading somewhere, and he's got the personality of Han Solo. And, and uh, so, anyways, I got to camp with him for like four or five days. And it, That's it, really it was awesome. It was awesome. What did you learn about Simon Anderson that you really? didn't already know, or did you, everything just kind of well, re? He is like Han Solo, that's for sure. Yeah. <laughs> he's got a dry wit, doesn't he? He does. Yeah, he's got a great personality, and he's uh, about you know he's just he reminds me of a lot of the the um, other veteran craftsmen that have been lucky to be around, like Skip Fry and Dick Brewer, just how passionate the true like raw passion they have for just surfing and building surfboards, and which you don't see so much from the younger generation. Yeah. So it that was that was pretty neat. Well, let's let's step back a little bit. Tell me about um in a nutshell the 1980s for Chris Christensen. If I said 1980s, Chris, what was it like? What'd you do, you know, in a nutshell? Oh man, skateboards, baseball, surfing, rock and fig. I had a I was riding rock and fig surfboards. <laughs> Radical. And where were you surfing? Uh, I was mostly surfing in Orange County, basically from Seal Beach to Huntington Beach. I could ride my bike to Seal Beach, and that was the nearest place. I used to ride it, ride down the riverbed that dumped off into the Seal Beach River jetty. And the waves were always smaller there, so if it was rideable, we went there because we, we spent the last 30 minutes on our bikes trying to get there. And then if it was flat, you just kept going south and you know, ended up at Huntington if we had to, which would have been like about an hour and 20 minute bike ride yeah. <laughs> with the board. And it always got windy there, but you know, we were groms. We didn't care. Yeah. We'd bring our $3 and we'd, uh, and we'd eat at Taco Bell for lunch. And if we were still too hungry, I'd, I'd eat all oh, the whole burrito except for the last inch and a half. And then I'd pull some of my hair out and stick it in the burrito and go to the person and say, Hey, there's hair in my burrito. So I could get another free burrito and make it home on my bike. <laughs> Good one. That always worked for the long haul at Huntington. The hair and the burrito trick. Mm-hmm. People don't realize that you're actually quite an athlete. I know that you're a great golfer. I know that you played Little League. You were a good baseball player, right? Yeah, I played a lot of baseball, yeah. Did you play golf back then? Yeah, I played high school golf and college golf. Um, baseball, basketball, football. Yeah. And a closet jock, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Me too. I'm actually too, out of the yeah. closet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I love sports. Where are the visors at, by the way? I don't see any I visors. Know. Dude, you're catching me. Don't take a picture of me without a visor on. Um, so you, you went to Point Loma Nazarene from Orange County, the university here at Point Loma. Mm-hmm. And you went there on a golf scholarship? Yeah, I went there on a golf scholarship. That's pretty cool. Yeah, it was. Um, and did you play all four years? D one Is it a D1 program there? Or? It then it was uh gosh what was I forget what level it was it was my high school team was really good we could have beat them but <laughs> oh really? yeah what was your high school team like I mean guys I might know as a golf geek um well we competed again there's a lot of good golfers in the area so there was Ted O we played against um 
and we you know we played against Tiger Woods. He he went to Western, so my team we competed against him twice a year, every year, and then plus uh, when we went to CIF and all that. So I actually grew up playing a lot with Tiger in, right. in the junior PGA I played in. Um, and then him and I were actually on the same team, Industry Hills. I remember watching a PGA event on TV when I was a kid, and they were talking about this new junior golf program that Industry Hills had, and it was like an invite only, and they had their own team, and they were talking about this Tiger kid. And I remember asking my dad, I go, I want to get on that team. And then so I went through the whole program, and I made that team. Cool. And actually, Tiger almost got me kicked off of that team because in one of the summer tournaments we played, for whatever reason, I had a lighter on me. <laughs> And on the last hole, I hated the way I played, so I lit my scorecard on fire and stuck it in the cup. And Tiger Tiger was in the group behind me, and then he comes in, and we all meet with our coach, and Tiger's like, hey, who burnt their scorecard? And my name ended up not getting burned off, and I got, uh, I got suspended from the team for a couple weeks. So. Oh, man. <laughs> well, now you're at Point Loma Nazarene, and um, how did you get involved in shaping surfboards? We know how you got involved surfing, but tell me about the beginnings of your shaping career. Um, I After my freshman year, well, I got exposed heavily to John Wagner. John Wagner and I went to Point Loma together, and I saw his whole trip. I mean, what he was he still looks the same today, too. It's awesome. But, you know, in 91, John Wagner was still, you know, when we're all wearing shorts to our ankles and you know, fashion was pretty bad then. But <laughs> John Wagner was still in his vans and tube socks and wearing, you know, his OP corduroy, sh you know, thigh high shorts from, you know, 83 tank tops, long hair and riding. He wasn't riding anything under 7.0, a lot of, you know, stretched out thrusters and long boards and ripping on them and he had this whole crew of guys joel milam and i'm uh, trying to fit troy peters and i just got exposed to watch them because i was just like a thruster nssa guy and right. you know cracking the lip what are these guys doing but then i just would sit on the cliff and watch these guys in between class and stuff i'm like these guys are rad yeah and i remember borrowing a long board from john digging it and then <clears throat> saving my pennies and i bought a i went to the long uh, longboard grotto i think it was in ocean beach or it might have been South Coast long, long boards. I don't know. It was there on the main drag. So I went and bought a used Takihama and rode it that whole summer, et cetera, and got got exposed to that style of surfing. And then, uh, so anyways, my neighbor where I grew up was a backyard shaper. He's this guy, Mike, from Hawaii. And ever since I was a kid on training wheels on my bike, I'd always watch him shape out of his garage. And, and you know, that's all what John and Troy Peters are doing. I'm like, yeah, I'm going to shape when I go home for the summer. Yeah, you know, I grew up outside of Long Beach. I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna make my own board. I'm gonna ask Mike if I can borrow his tools. So it kind of happened that way, and cool. I did it, and I, I shaped it to glass. It killed my dad's backyard lawn. Did it all out in the sun, and brought it to school and started riding it, and, and then kind of the rest was you kept going. Kind of, yeah, I kept going, and, and then John and Troy and I, we all used to share. We shared a shaping room together. Where was that? There's a couple. Well, we, Rich, uh, Rich Pavel had to this day the nicest shaping rooms I've ever seen. It was he had this place on Voltaire and Point Loma Ocean Beach border called Choice Shaping Studios. He had two rooms there, so the three of us rented the same room from him. And then 
years down the road, Troy Peters had this place in Ocean Beach on Brighton Street in the war zone. And we all used to shape out of there and glass out of there. And then Troy was moving back to the central coast area where he's from Ventura or somewhere further north. And um, he said, hey, Chris, I'd like you to take over this house. And I was graduating from college and I needed a place to live. I was always living in the dorms. And so long story shorter, I, uh, I ended up taking over that place and then shaped out of there. It's 5142 Brighton Street. It was a double car garage. And I rented that little bungalow for 500 bucks a month. Now I think it goes for about five grand. Sure. But, um, and then how did we get you to a place where you're being mentored by Brewer and Skip Fry? I mean, at some point you got into the industry, like your shapes got to a place where they're like, or did you start as like a sweep up kid or something like that? Well, I, I actually owe a lot to Rich Pavel, you know, him and I have a funny history, but, um, most people have a funny history with Rich Pavel for the record. Hi, hi Rich, if you're listening, you still, you do still owe me a beer though, but, (laughs) um, uh, Dick Brewer used to shape out of uh, Rich's place, and that's how I got exposed to him. And then there is Paul Kelly was managing Dick Brewer, and and you know he was coming to California. I don't know, at the time, probably four to six times a year to shape boards. He had a you know he had a really solid following. So I got exposed to that, and then um, Dick told Paul, he's like, "Hey, I'd like Chris to start helping me out and shaping for me," and then. I got that gig, and then, then I started doing a little bit with Rusty, working for Rusty. I started working for GNS a little bit, working for Sharp Eye, and then I was also still going to college at the same time too. And I was doing the whole pre med thing, and I was also and I got a, a minor in business as well. So I was like, yeah, getting ready for grad school. And then after my right when I graduated, I was so busy building surfboards that it was just easy decision for me not to do the grad school thing and just keep shaping and yeah, kind of the rest followed from there. And and that decision is an interesting one. I imagine part of that decision is, hey, I like to go surfing. I like to surf. I like the ocean. Yeah. This is my life. This is who I am. This is who I've, you know, was meant to be. Which led to me quitting the golf team. <laughs> I went to Point Loma. I had a scholarship, but it was a lot of work. And our home course was way out in El Cajon. So I would drive my old Volkswagen bus from Point Loma all the way out to El Cajon to, I think it was called, um, Gosh, was it called Singing Hills at the time or something like that? It was way out there. It's yeah. like forty minute drive. Come back and miss the cafeteria. And then I'd, you know, we weren't that health conscious back then. I'd go to McDonald's with my five dollars to get lunch. And then I'd hand my receipt to my coach and I'd say, "Hey, dude, I need, I miss the cafeteria, and here's my five dollar receipt for my McDonald's because I." <laughs> and then the coach wouldn't reimburse me, and I got so fired up. And so me and the coach started getting these headbutts. You know, and I was yeah. really getting upset because I. I felt like I had better treatment on my high school team. And then I was missing a ton of time in the water. You know, my dorm room's right there. And, and you know, I get back from golf at nine. It's dark. My friends are telling me how good the surf was. And I'm like, you know what, man? <laughs> Screw this. I'm off. The, I told the coach I'm quitting. I had to tell my parents, what are you going to do with the money? I'm like, I'll just work, you know? And I, I worked my butt off. I painted houses and I glass surfboards and I shaped surfboards to make up for all the money that I wasn't getting with my golf scholarship. Yeah. Well, you've always been a hard worker. I, I, that doesn't surprise me that you worked hard to get to get her done, so to speak. Tell me about Brewer, though. I mean, to have Dick Brewer as an influence, what does that mean? Like, does that physically mean that he's like, Chris, come here, I want to show you how to turn down a rail properly? Like, is it that kind of instruction that you get from Dick Brewer, or is it more like osmosis? Well, it's, it's 
was quite the opposite. I hated the way he used the planer. <laughs> and he never told me what to do. I just did it. Yeah. And, and you know, and then once he, he'd show me, you know, like, hey, you know, that I want it more like this and more like that. And then he'd, so I had no choice but to learn on my own because he'd get on the plane and take off. And I wouldn't see him for a couple months. And then a lot of it would come through Paul Kelly. And then, you know, Paul Kelly. Paul was a manager of, the, of of, of Dick Brewer for the mainland, and then uh, where did those boards end up? Did they end up up here in Encinitas? At the he had Brewer had like a little shop up here at some point. Well, that was him and I got that shop together in in, in uh, Ocean Beach. Oh, there was, was a that, shop in Ocean Beach. Yeah, we had a shop on um, a retail outlet for Brewer. Surfboard. We had two shaping rooms and a little showroom and on Voltaire Street, in Ocean Beach, like Voltaire and Sunset Cliffs Boulevard, right by the Jack in the Box. There, we had that for a few years. Um, yeah, that was pretty neat. And I remember um, uh, the Walton kids, one one of the other shapers was John Hawley, who was good friends with all the Waltons. So Luke Walton, Chris Walton, they used to always come in there and sweep our floors. Rad. It was pretty cool. <laughs> so I actually ran into Luke Walton at at a Charger game last year. They had him down there like, Luke Walton. And I go, hey. <laughs> After he did his little like, hello to the whole stadium on the big screen. I go, hey, remember when you used to sweep my shop? He's like, huh, who are you? I go, I used to work with John Hawley. He's like, oh, hey, what's up? He's That's like, cool. we all ride Hawley boards. Yeah. <laughs> so he apparently he still serves. Sweet. Now he's the coach of the Lakers, coaching LeBron. Well, we'll sweep see. my shop. For how long do you think? Who knows? <laughs> um, what about Skip? I know Skip Fry is a huge influence on you. So um, how did that come about? So Skip, so one in several years forward, I think this was 1998. I w had my own factory in Bay Park area off of Marina Boulevard. And um, I was actually going to expand, and the building next to me came up for lease, and I was like, I'm going to build a glass shop in there. I had this little tiny glass shop, and I was doing everything out of one little small 600-square-foot place, start to finish, making my own fins, everything. So I was thinking about expanding, and then I got cold feet, and then I heard the rumor about Skip and Donna and Hank Warner having to move out of their place, Harry's, in Pacific Beach. And I was like, wow, that'd be so cool to if he worked here, you know? <laughs> I kind of knew him a little bit. I actually... I actually bought a, a fish off him after searching for Tom Curran came out in 95. So I had a small relationship with him already. And I'm like, you know what? I'm just going to go tell him I got a place. Yeah. Cause I, so I told him and, and then him and Donna came and looked at it and they got it. So we were neighbors for 10 years more or less. Right. And, and when you say neighbors, you mean like the same, um, the same space, like neighbors as in shaping bays are next to each other or the same, same complex, but I had his unit was right next to my unit. Right. So our, you know, we're eight inches apart with our walls. Um, and that was neat. There was no like, Hey, this is how you do it. Or it was, you know, that was definitely osmosis and yeah. just being around a different craft and then seeing his lifestyle. And it was cool. And a complete opposite of Dick Brewer. Yeah. But yeah, I, kind of, I definitely hit the lottery ticket of, of who I was exposed to from, Rich From Pavel, Pavel, yeah. Pavel to Brewer to John Hawley, who, you know, he was always, you know, a, a ghost shaper, an old school GNS guy and just a, just a bruiser from Sunset Cliffs too, you know, <laughs> and he, he wasn't light on me, but he, you know, I'd be like, oh, I got six hand shapes done already. And he's like, 
when I was your age, I would have surfed twice already and got the six done by now. You know? <laughs> so he's really salty. He was salty, man. And, but it was it was good to have him around. And I always now I always say, you know, I see how kind of you know that this younger generation is a little softer. I'm like, man, you know, there needs to be some more John Hollies around these guys. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I was lucky from Rich Pavel to Dick Brewer to having a John Holly was just a complete opposite of everybody. And then to being around Skip Fry, I mean, I couldn't have gotten luckier. Yeah, that's quite a pedigree. Um, well, as we fast forward, Chris, a little bit, you've got, I think you have a pro team. Do you have a professional surf team? Because I see guys on your boards, and I always say to myself, God, does Chris just give these guys boards? Or do they, like, is there a contract that's signed? I know, of course, Greg Long's the one that comes to the mind, Greg and Brad Gerlach. And, of course, look, I'm not asking you to get into the nuts and bolts of, of of money, but I'm just wondering, like, if somebody somebody said, "Chris, who's on your pro team?" Would you say nobody, or would you say? I don't. I can't really. I don't know. I don't really look at it as a team, more or less. And I don't like to use the word ambassador or influencers or anything. It just. I mean, at the end of the day, they're all my friends, right. which I've been lucky with. Um, Greg is Greg Long is exclusive with me, and there's no formal contracts or anything it's just high fives handshakes and beers and hanging out and spending time with each other um and do you give him boards or does he buy boards or a little bit of both yeah they all get they all get boards and they trade them in but only very few people on that list get free boards but they all give them back um and then the rest pay for them yeah and uh you know ian walsh he's not exclusively on my boards but we have a really tight relationship brad gerlach he's never really been exclusive but we've you know, yeah. that our relationship so tight and I, I don't really like to waste my time being jealous about what yeah. other boards are riding or anything. If anything, that just makes me better because I like to see what works yeah. or doesn't work for people. And I think that's, you know, that it's better for surfing. You know, so many, there's a lot of people out there that are insecure when someone starts riding other equipment, but I think it's, you know, I think it's to an advantage, you know. It's good, at, you know, and more than anything, it's good to know what boards don't work more than the ones that do work. Yeah, I, I did an interview with Scott Anderson at Channel Islands, and he said that that's the way Al was. That Al, Al didn't was Al, Al was actually stoked if he wrote somebody else's board because he was going to get feedback. Cheaper too. What about Mikey DeTemple? <laughs> I see him, and I know him. He's a friend of ours, and he's a great surfer. And I see him on your website. Mm-hmm. Just another friend that gets. I have a it, website, so I don't know. <laughs> yes, it looks good. Really? Um, yeah, again, Mikey, everything's relationship-based. I've known Mikey since he's about 12, uh, back when he was riding for Takayama. And um, just I used to visit Florida a lot, and then I made a lot of relationships just traveling. That's been another key yeah. to keeping me busy is, is traveling. Um, and then, yeah, he's been exclusive and... Yeah, yeah, there's no contracts. It's all just relationship-based, and they trust me, I trust them, and um, if they want to write something else, there's never a hard feeling. I I know that you get to go to so many big waves, some really, frankly, some historic events. If we look back in 30 years, you were at some incredible moments in history mm-hmm. in big wave surfing. I imagine, you. do you see young guys like, Maybe one of some of these Chilean writers or Peruvian guys or this Tom Lowe guy from England or wherever he's from. He's an animal. <laughs> do you see these guys and you do you do you say to yourself, you know what, I need to make that guy aboard because it's going to be good for both of us. I've never, I, I mean, maybe it's happened, but I, I'm. It's not 
I'm more, I don't really approach anybody. Right. Um, when Greg Long and I met, Brad Gerlach did all that work, and we were at one of the Big Wave Awards. I think it was the year that Brad won an award, and and Brad just goes up to Greg, and he's like, hey, Chris, why don't you Greg? He's a, this is the future of Big Wave surfing right here. And Greg's like, yeah, man, I've always wanted to get one of the boards, and it just kind of happens naturally, you know? And then through that, then you get the phone call from me and Walsh, and then from there you get the phone call from Tom Lowe. So it all kind of happened organically. I've never been, you know, for lack of a – Better word, I don't ever want to be a used car salesman or yeah. force anything down anyone. If you want it, it's pretty easy to find me. So Yeah, cool. When you're hiring for a small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role, and there's no faster or effective way than through LinkedIn Jobs. Your time and capital are precious, and there is a powerful resource that can help you focus on what you're good at and integrate people into your team seamlessly to help grow your business. LinkedIn Jobs has created the tools to find the right professionals for your team efficiently and for free. LinkedIn isn't just another job board. Everyone is already on LinkedIn with their resumes and references, and now LinkedIn has designed a hiring platform to connect you with candidates specifically qualified for the job that you post about. More than a billion professionals meticulously organized to connect people by skill set to help us all advance our position. 2.5 million businesses already use LinkedIn for hiring, and 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. It's that fast, easy to use, and effective. LinkedIn Jobs can help you write job descriptions, filter the right person to you, and give you the tools to help you interview them like a pro. LinkedInjobs.com slash surf is where you go to post your job for free. Yes, totally free. That's linkedinjobs.com slash surf to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Yeah. Greg Long, interesting. I was thinking um, this morning, I was thinking about Greg Long, and I, and I said to myself, where does he stand in big wave history, big wave riding history? And I'm talking about George Downing, Peter Cole, Greg Knoll, um, you know, some other great big, you know, yep. obviously Eddie Aikau, um, to Mark Food, Ken Bradshaw. I mean, there's actually quite a long list of Brock, guys. Brock Little. Yeah, thank you. I mean, there, where does Greg Long stand in your mind relative to these greats? I mean, just like hearing that list you just said, it's almost like, you know, like just different chapters, you know, in the, the um, different eras and generations of, there's you know, serving has generations now and of eras and styles and characters. Um, he's Is he number one, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> you, I think with each generation there comes, there is a pioneer in some sort, you know, yeah. like what Greg and, you know, let's just call his generation. You know, you got Greg, Shane Dorian, Mark Healy, Ian Walsh, you know, the list goes on. I'm, 
you know, um, we're missing about we're, thirty. We're missing about thirty other yeah. guys. Yeah. You know, I'm thinking international guys like Ramon Navarro and Tom Lowe, um, Jamie Mitchell. The the generation that's in the water right now is is you know they're definitely pioneers in the right where they they kind of took over where I, I don't want to say toe surfing stopped but they you know where everyone's like I don't think that you know th- this is the limit with paddle surfing and now it's toe surfing and then, and then they they prove that theory wrong you know and the ones now paddling into thirty footers at yeah. Piahi on different equipment and. And it was cool to be at the forefront of all that. Yeah. And I think what really helped me with that is I got really into competitive paddle boarding. And I knew it was all about paddle. And then the boards at the time were really bladed out, rocker, just bent and curvy. And and I knew what a board that needed a paddle fast felt like. Yeah. And that really helped me. Yeah. And does that mean? Because I'm not out there when it's 30 foot. No, no, no. I have no, no. In, I have What's no the interest What's the biggest wave in you've ever surfed? I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> Good answer. Yeah. <laughs> so does that mean that as far as design is concerned, I'm I'm completely a novice. I don't know much about, I don't know anything relative to you, but I imagine it means some roll in the nose at the bo- on the bottom, or am I wrong there? Well, there's a lot. I mean, the everything you know, with the with the big wave boards, it, 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 things don't change drastically. You know, everything's an eighth of an inch at a time because lives are on the line. Lives are on the line and. And, uh, I want to be confident what I put out there. So, you know, more than anything was the volumes, you know, the guys are at the time, guys are, their big wave boards are three and a quarter was a thick board, you know, now everything's four inches, Yeah, which is a lot. And most of these guys, I mean, very few of the guys in the water weigh more than 155 pounds. How do they sink something that thick? And I I look at something that thick and I just go, how did my little chicken legs get that thing buried and keep it buried? Are they, is it because the things are so narrow that at that point, yeah, I mean the thickness is all for that's. I mean that's a hundred percent for getting into the wave. Yeah, so, you know, back so that's where for the, just paddling. Back where I'm standing. I'm, back for paddling. You know, and, and now they're getting so confident on these things. So now the challenge right now is getting them to turn better, which is hard because yeah, you're dealing with so much length. Which then with length you get a lot straighter lines in the outline, which stiffens the board up. You're, you're going fast, and you know sometimes you've been on boards where you're going really fast on a wave, and you notice when it's a little harder to turn when you start yeah. going faster. So that's the algebra I'm dealing with right now. Is these guys are wanting to perform more, like how their toe boards were turning. Right. So trying to get a board that'll paddle into something like that and put it on rail. That's, that's, that's our challenge. Have right we now. got, have we, have we gotten to a place where we're about, we're about as short as we can go? Like say a 20, 20 foot jaws. I mean, no. like eight, six, what's the shortest well, you see board what, being ridden out there by the Ian Walsh's of the world? Well, they're trying to go shorter cause you got the guy, the West bull crew. Right. I'll you know, I mean, all guys. those guys, and they're on sub nine. A lot of times, they're on sub nine foot boards, and I've seen those boards. And um, yeah, they're I, you know, I applaud the craftsmanship in them. They're bitching. Um, I think it's Sean Ordonez that's making a lot of those in yeah. Maui. Yeah. Um. Yeah, I. You know, if if I had to close my eyes for five years and I woke up and heard everyone's riding, you know, seven O's out there, it's not going to surprise me. You know. Yeah. Yeah. I hope we can get to that. Yeah. But at the you know at the end of the day, safety's first too. I've heard that um, people talking about the World Championship Tour and the need for a big wave event on the World Championship Tour, and I don't just mean like Chopu once every couple seasons gets eight to ten feet. I'm talking about 
Jaws or um, Puerto Escondido or Mavericks. If we're going to say that the WCT world champion is the greatest surfer, don't you feel like they should be they should want to compete at least once on the WCT tour in a wave of consequence like that? No, you know, I don't think so. I mean, it's such a, I don't know. It's like, I think that'd be like talking to like some of the best boulders in the world or guys that climb with ropes and they can do half dome and El Capitan and all that with ropes and all that. And it's like, all right, cool. Now do it without ropes, you know, like Alex Honnold. It's just, it's a different breed, you know, I don't. All right. I don't know if I quite You're back that. in your crew. <laughs> I mean, I mean, will you be okay? I mean, first of all, maybe you don't really care about the WCT. I mean, it's like, say, hey, assuming- you're a defensive player, but let's see you play offense or, hey, you're a quarterback, but I want to see you be a running back now or. It's just well, a, it's a completely like different position on the field, you know. Gary Elkerton, we know, and even frankly, John John Florence. Like, I'm stoked if John John Florence is our world champion. It's I know that s- guy can do it in everything. Yeah, yeah, and that's a, and, and if we a get rare... a world champion that can't do it in everything, don't you think it's sort of like, hey man, prove yourself where Gary Elkerton and all the other guys did it? Yeah, that's debatable for sure. Yeah. And you definitely appreciate those that can. Yeah, more, think... you know, and. I'm just saying one event. I'm not saying get rid of the big wave. And the tour. same thing. I think a lot of the guys on the you know the the regular tour also would like to see. Hey, let's see you guys come and compete in these four foot surf too. You know, you could go both ways. Well, I'm not saying the big wave guys. I'm just saying that if the the WCT, the supposed best surfers in the world, right? If you're going to call yourself that, just give me one event with the men. Let me see you on an eight foot board. Yeah, it'd be cool to see just where a con- where the you know it's a select amount of guys where it's like all right we got uh we're doing this contest in three spots it's going to be at lowers it's going to be at it's going to be at uh bells and then the last round is going to be at mavericks or that would be kind of cool what about you know how phil mickelson and tiger woods are talking about doing this 10 million dollar golf match in vegas who would you like to see if i said the the place we're doing this is 20 foot jaws you get man-on-man, man, three hours in the water. This is the pay-per-view TV event that, that Chris and Scott are producing. Who are the two guys? Oh, you put me on the spot. Can I say six or eight of them? No, no. <laughs> no, but and I want you to put on the hat of a TV producer. Like, who does the consumer want to see? I, I, you know, I know that you're going to be a little biased towards your guys, but put on the hat of, like, you know, my son or some kid that's like, oh, I really want to watch that. I'm that like, what is must see TV? Cause I might suggest to you that frankly, it could be Kelly Slater and Laird Hamilton. As far as my wife watching it or Joe blow down the street. That watching. That would be good TV. Yeah. I could. Gosh. I mean, if I was a TV, if I had to put my TV producer hat on, <laughs> I thinking about it the last 40 seconds while you brought this up, uh, Shane Dorian keeps coming to my mind though, you know, yeah. just from being around him and seeing the respect he gets from everyone. He's kind of, um, he ticks he, all the boxes. He's still out there and he's kind of the, you know, the more experienced older guy in that group. Um, and he comes, you know, and he comes from, you know, a, perf- a high performance background as well. I don't know. I just, he's, he keeps coming to my mind, so I, it'd yeah. be hard for me to not put him in the water in that arena, you know? And then, right. 
Kelly Gosh, Slater obviously there's there's Kelly, there's John John, then you got the other staples of you know Ian and Greg and I mean, there's just so many. That's just too hard. Yeah, that's just too hard. It is. That's why I asked you. <laughs> so there's so many better golfers than Phil and Tiger right now. Right, but, I but mean, you know you would tune in, right? But yeah, you, if you threw you? if you threw them in a mall in Kenya, like more people recognize them than Jordan Spieth. So right. I get it. Yeah. Um, that thundercloud event. A huge cloud break mm-hmm. during the Volcom Fiji Pro in 2012. There was a moment where Mark Healy's on one of your boards and yeah. he ditches and he swims under, and your board almost becomes one of the main players of that swell. There was a lot <laughs> of really great action, but there's a couple of, I think, Tom Survey images, or there's probably quite a few Those photographers who captured images. that. And I, that board, and everyone's going, well, Whose board is that? And what board is that? That board's sort of. Um, was sort of a marketing coup for you. Can you talk a little bit about that? I remember that. I was, so that was on a Wednesday, if I remember correct. And that day, and it's all, it's, it's funny how big swells are always on Wednesday. (laughs) But I remember I was, I was, it was Sunday and I was sitting on my couch watching TV. I was probably on beer number two. And then Greg calls me and then I get a text from Healy Ah, oh, massive swell, Fiji. We're gone, but there's another one here. They didn't know where they're going, and I was like, hey, "We need, we need two boards. Can you make? Can you jam out some eight O's or eight sixes? When do you need them by? We're flying out Tuesday. I'm like, it's Sunday, right now. <laughs> oh my God. Sunday afternoon. But I was, you know, I, that time, you know, during the season, I, you know, I'm always like, a, I yeah. feel like I'm a doctor on call, and I'm, like, but you know, I'm into it. I'm like, rad. All right, I go, all right, I go. You gotta bring me. You gotta bring me some dinner because I'm gonna be here late tonight. <laughs> <laughs> so I made Greg drive down from San Clemente. He brought me in and out burger, and so I started shaping those things about four in the afternoon on a Sunday, and got them glass and finished and everything and in their hands Monday night or Tuesday morning, whatever it was. And then they're on the airplane. They flew that red eye or whatever, and then they're in the water that Wednesday. You know, three days later. Yeah, on those, those boards. boards. I don't know. And I, I was like, I don't know how that board survived. That thing was so wet and green. Was, I mean, their board bags had to smell like my factory when That's they got That's amazing. There. So it did survive. It survived, yeah. Do you know where that board is? It was by my laminator, Adam, who just started working with me, and he was still in kind of training mode. <laughs> All right. <laughs> extra green. Yeah, extra green. I think those boards were eight, five, eight, six, if I remember right. And, you know, they definitely could have got with bigger boards. They would be a lot bigger if that swells now. I was perusing your website. You've got an incredible amount of models. You've got the Invisible Policeman, which I think is one of your newer ones. You've got the Sea Bucket, the Flat Tracker, the Sea Hag, Solitude, Ocean Racer, Mescaline, Nautilus, Cafe Racer, Gurr, Chris Craft, Bonneville, Bonneville? Mm-hmm. California Pin, Dead Sled, and I'm probably missing a few. Yeah, and some of those are no longer. Yeah, a few new how, ones. A few, if you got taken off that list. How important is the model, and how important is marketing to a surfboard business? Um, yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, it is a business, and I have to treat it like one. Um, especially building surfboards, it's the margins. You know, as most people know, I don't know any surfboard shapers that have a Ferrari parked outside their factory. 
Um, I've been fortunate though. I've, I've been able to make a decent living and, um, it, the models, the models are really important because they're all team rider based or rider based more or less, you know? So it's once something gets proven that it works and then, you know, then you make that the model and then that, you know, becomes part of your, your business capsule. And, and it's, it's, you know, I've always been, I've, I've been into, you know, having a real diversified range of styles and boards that in surfing, I'm just into all styles from performance to traditional. I, I hate the word retro to me. That's regressive. I always, you know, even my nose riders, I picture them as if like the sixties never stopped. You know, I never liked that high performance era of longboarding or anything like that. But, but those are real important, you know, and then you have your, each rider has its own personality more or less. And, and, you know, like the Bonneville, that's Mitch Absher's model, you know, and that's based off of him and where the dead sled is Scotty Stopnicks. And then the Gur is obviously what Brad Gerlach, you know, and I have worked with all along. So that's important, you know, and feedback's everything with surfboards and having that stamp of approval from those guys kind of validates that board works. My favorite model is the Dauntless. Is that model still in existence? <laughs> if I wanted to get it, could I, I think I get the it? Dauntless evolved into the Nautilus. I want a yeah. Dauntless. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of oh. there's a lot of things from the past too. Uh, like you know, at the end of the day, like I always like the In and Out Burger menu. I, you know, it's simple and small. You don't want to confuse people. So sometimes things kind of have a rebirth and become born again. You know, like the fish was huge in the late '90s until like 2008, 2010, and then it kind of like wiggled off and died off and then now it came back and it's stronger than ever again you know like yeah. six years ago i took the fish off the website i noticed that the fish is the only thing on your model list that just says fish like there's no kind of clever marketing it's what it is yeah yeah but back to the dauntless okay unbeknownst to you i've ordered an agave blank mm-hmm and they asked me, they're like, who do you want to shape it? And I'm like, shit. I didn't even know. I was like, can I just get a blank? I just wanted a Nagavi right. surfboard. And I go, you know what? I'd like, I need, I need to get a Dauntless. I'd like Chris to shape me. a. And I don't even know. I didn't even ask you. I don't even know if you can do it or if you want to do it. And then they said, hey, we're kind of trying to do something with Chris. Yeah, been, now, I, don't, I got a couple phone calls. I still know what's going on. So this is all new to me. Yeah, I kind of <laughs> don't either. No, I don't either. I literally just sent him a direct message like, I need a blank. Yeah. And, um, and I'm not even sure if I can get one, but what what do you think if I said, hey, make me an agave dauntless? What what goes through your head? Are you like, no, I'm not into it, or I've never shaped it, or I'm like, guide me here? No, it's easy. I totally remember that board I made you. God, what was that, like eight I years still have ago? It. Yeah, I, I mean, I think it's a lot like, you know, how musicians are with their music. You know, they can record and write a song 15 years ago and then not play it for 10 years and then pick up a guitar and go right into it without even needing to practice, you know? So yeah. I'm stoked. I'm at that point with my craft now and my memory is not as good as it used to be, but I remember that board. <laughs> and, and, and agave shaping something out of agave. Is that something that you've ever done before? I mean, I haven't, I've shaped a lot of balsa, but I haven't shaped agave yet. Yeah. I've, I've shaped redwood. That was redwoods rough. Sometimes the balsa, depending on how you know long that tree has been dried out for, sometimes that can be, wet and tough. rough and tough but uh and then sometimes it's not but yeah yeah i like i like new challenges and i still like pulling the planer out and yeah doing it the old-fashioned way yeah yeah well um the dauntless evolved into the nautilus why would i want a nautilus not the dauntless 
Turns better. Just a little, you know. I don't turn. <laughs> no, <I'm> just <laughs> I always saw the Dauntless as sort of like a step up where I, I'm not going to be doing major off the lips. I'm more or less trying to just yeah. weave my way through the wave and kick out successfully. Yeah, yeah. That was the idea of that board. Um, but, you know, with each model, like, I'm, you know, a lot of, you see with like a lot of brands, it doesn't have to be surfboards. You see with like clothing and shoes, you know, they got a new thing every season, you know, winter, spring, summer, fall. And I've just kind of never been into that. I was just kind of like, you know, don't, you know, don't fix what's not broken. And so a lot of my model names stay the same, but I always try to tweak them. Like if I can make them better, I make them better. And then there's some that like the, the C buck is a, just kind of a timeless mid length. Like I designed that. I'm going to say between, I don't know exactly around 99 to 2002. And I haven't changed one thing about it. Yeah. Same as my fish. I really, other than, you know, tucking the edge a little different or, you know, tweaking the fin placement a little different. It's pretty much still the same. You know, there's, you know, you see these other brands that are just always changing the model names and this and that. And yeah, and it looks Keeping just like, with the it just looks like what they did 10 years ago. It's like, why right. change? I don't know. To each their own though. Yeah. Like I said, I like the In-N-Out Burger model. <laughs> right. What about the keel fin on the, on the fish? Like, I've always, um, for whatever reason, I've looked at the keel fin and I've thought to myself, God, it looks like a lot of fin for me to, to deal with. Mm-hmm. And uh, I've had some lists that had more of like a traditional, like an MR twin fin size or type fin, you know, mm-hmm. not a keel. So talk to me about the keel fin and, and the positive aspects of it, or maybe the, some of the drawbacks. Yeah. So like, like back to what I was saying, like the fish design hasn't changed a whole lot, but the fins have, um, and I've noticed on, I'm, I don't use like the proper keel on my fish under five, eight anymore. I'm, I'm going more with like a low back design and a single foil just for the performance. So, so much of the fish is like, I'd say out of 10 guys, I order a fish for me. They want, um, they request a lot longer than they really need. And then I kind of have to find the medium, you know, cause like, I'm like, Hey, you can take another four inches off. Trust me. But you know, I know they're spending money, so I, I want to respect their comfort level. But so let's just say I go with what they requested or I, I met in the middle and I run into them three months later. And I love that board, but I should have took your advice. I could have gone smaller. Yeah. And so a lot of the performance of the fish is getting the length right first and then the fins. So with the keel fins, it is a lot of fin, but so the advantages to them, though, that double foil fin is they can hold and surprise people on how a bigger wave you can really push that design because it's, the fish was never intended to be a small wave design and a lot of people kind of through the 90s and stuff kind of ended up making it that way oh the nose is wider than 11 and a half inches it's a small wave board but it's not you know and the, and the guys when they designed it at sunset cliffs it's called a twin pin it wasn't called a right. swallowtail it wasn't called a you know and then the standard then is the tip to tip it had to be wider 17. than 12 oh. 12 inches okay. 12 or 13 it yeah. depends who you talk to yeah and um so anyways, the on the bigger boards, I started going with, the you know, I was finding that the keels work better for the larger set guys and the low backs. You know, the low backs were starting to, you know, perform more like, you know, conventional short boards. So, and then with the narrower, like the Stevie Liz has had more curve in them and then you could get away with, you know, the, the keel fins and the low backs didn't go well with the, with the curvier outlines. They went well with the straight outlines, which match kind of the fin shape. And then with the curvier, narrower Liz designs, the fins kind of match with it. So... I started learning from that, like, you know, you can, you want the, 
the fin curves to almost imitate the curves of the outline. And then when I get custom orders and I see the guy, I kind of want to build a board like the way the guy's built. If I get someone that comes in that are tall and lean, I kind of want to build them something that's a little stretched out and longer. Mm-hmm. You get a shorter, stocky guy coming in, you build a shorter, stockier s- surfboard. So mm, there's a lot of uh, correlations, odd correlations with that stuff. What about glass and fins? It seems like that's something that we've lost touch with. And I know that from a retail standpoint, from getting the boards to market and getting even resale on boards, um, used boards, people want boxes. Obviously, there's it's so great to be able to put in FCS2s or Futures and to travel with. Is Are we missing something f- from the, the glass on fin? Like, is there some performance that was definitely subtracted when we all decided to get fin bo- fin systems initially there was a huge performance loss you know and there i remember what you know back in the, the early o's and stuff you'd still see guys like taj burrow and aki that were just exclusively glass on fins because a lot of composites of the removable systems from fcs and future at the times were plastic and they just didn't have the memory and the flex that fiberglass did nor the base structure and you know since then the the integrity of the boxes and the fins have improved a lot. The performance of them, um, you know, and the shapers and the service started, you know, the, the ability to switch out fins and change like an okay board to make it better by just switching out the fins in three minutes. Um, the other, the, the biggest thing is that, that really kept the, in my opinion, that kept the, the fin box system, the fin system thing moving along is, is just the production aspect for it in the factory. I mean, it's, it's a lot more work glassing on a fin for the sanders, et cetera, et cetera. And most people that work in factories are on piecework. They get per, paid per sand job, paid per fin, et cetera. So, um, the, the, you know, you, you, you put 10 sand jobs outside of a sanders room and, you know, and five of them are, uh, with a fin system and five of them are glass ons and the glass ons are getting done last. So yeah. that's a lot of it. But, um, can, can a glass on fin work better than a box fin? Yeah. In certain situations and certain, but in most situations, it seems to be the box fins are the call, you know, with my guns, right. If someone comes to me, wants glass on fins, cool. But you know, if it's for a big event, I'm, I know what works We're right now. And I just, I'm not gonna, yeah. I'm not gonna, change the formula you know so it's like the glass on fins have almost become like the wooden bat in baseball you know we oh. we know they work right and it's now it's it's <laughs> you know and there's certain boards like the dot my dauntless has glass on yeah there, hey there's just certain boards where it's just like that board has to have glass on fins you right. know what i mean right. it's like you don't go and lure a truck that's four-wheel drive you know <laughs> <It's> just, <laughs> would an agave dauntless need glass on that, fins? yeah an agave board you yeah you throw fin boxes on that and that's just like putting lipstick on a man can't do it <laughs> that is wrong yeah it's just yeah i mean <sighs> wrong for you know, not for everyone it, right. it is 2018 so right. and we do live in southern california right we'll just step back we'll from that probably see a couple of people that have lipstick on them today but well as you know um or maybe you don't know, but I've done some interviews with with um, Mark Price at Firewire. I did one with Dennis Jarvis at Spider Surfboards. And obviously, um, Peter Schroff did a lot to sort of reignite sort of some of the, um, I guess, disgust, I would say, with 
with the imported surfboard versus the domestic surfboard, there's there's a lot of animosity out there. And um, and I'm just wondering where you stand on all this as a domestic surfboard, as one of the greatest domestic surfboard makers. Um, you must have an opinion. I know you do. Um, what are your thoughts? And actually, before that, I'd like to know, are you, are you a, do you consider yourself a free market, global market capitalist? I am all for capitalism. Definitely am. So, um, I've, I've been known to be outspoken about these issues, uh, with import boards and, um, you know, especially during the Clark phone times, you know, I was rather outspoken about, you know, everything should be handshaked, you know, and then <laughs> as my business evolved, so did I and my beliefs and my mentality. Cause like I said, at the end of the day, it's all a business, um, which I'm passionate about and I love and it supported an amazing lifestyle for me, which I'm, you know, I'm one, I know I'm, I know I'm a one percenter as far as the luck goes on that. Um, so yeah, I'm very aware with everything that's going on and it, I've, in the last few months, I've actually um, really changed my approach and become a little less vocal about it all. And, I, and I've, I've started, I almost can, I applaud, actually applaud what Peter Schroff and Dennis Jarvis are doing. Um, I don't want to be the, you know, I don't want to be at the front of the line and with the speaker in my hand and shouting anything. But I also... I actually have respect for what Mark Price is doing because um, at the end of the day, he's the, those firewire boards. Like I look at the craftsmanship behind them and wherever they're made, I, I don't really know what factory or I can't even, I can, I kind of guess where they're made, but <laughs> the boards look good. And when they brought on Daniel Thompson's a very close friend of mine and he actually worked out of my factory. Um, and showed me the contract he was about to sign. I actually, you know, kind of, I didn't, I didn't mentor him with it or anything, but I, you know, he asked me for some feedback and yeah. I didn't see the details of it, but you know, I said, yeah, go for it, man. It's good for you. And you know, Daniel's such a high level surfer too. And I, I knew what his lifestyle was about and it supported it. And it also, that contract supported him to build boards on his own too. So it was, it was a win-win for him. And I think it's, I hope it's been great for him. So, I do you do you support tariffs on boards coming in from any imported surfboard? Do you do you support putting a tariff on it so to level the playing field, so to speak? To use Dennis Jarvis's phrase, well, let's talk global tariffs. Okay, so uh, the reason I go to Europe and I build surfboards because shipping a surfboard from California to Europe the tariffs on their end for anything that comes from America that goes into Europe are ridiculous. And it makes the price of the surfboard so high just by the taxes and the shipping and import fees that, you know, and I was doing it and I was, I was sending 30 to 40 surfboards a year to Europe. As soon as I signed up with Pukas and I started making them there and doing all that and doing my trips out there and just putting my head down and powering. And now that, you know, the prices are at a level, a level field. So that's, that's kind of the economics one one behind it. So it's it varies from country to country. Right. Um so to to 
be prejudiced towards one product or another like okay well, well just because there's surfboards well what about everything else it can't just be just surfboards what yeah. about the cars what about what about the guitars that come in you know so it's it's so much deeper than you know backyard bob complaining about how he doesn't have any more business you know and i'm gonna go off on a little bit of a tangent here but and like i said i'm guilty of well, I don't know if I'm guilty, but I've definitely have been outspoken about import boards and all this in the past. But at the end of the day, there's a there's a couple soft top companies. <laughs> Catch Surf, um, INT, there's several, right? Well, these guys, let, let's just, I'm not going to say the name of the company, but there's one of those companies that collectively builds more surfboards annually than the top four surfboard brands put together channel islands firewire lost one other company there's a few other companies that compete for that four spot right yeah so that kind of tells you something right there and then you go to their instagram pages and they got hundreds of thousands more followers than a lot of us do yeah (laughs) so that kind of puts you at the state of where our little cottage industry is at right now. Like you get this brand new startup soft top company that's been around for six to eight years. That's producing over a hundred thousand surfboards a year, you know, more than the top four brands are together. And, but everyone's still whining and it's like, all right, quit looking out the window, look in the mirror, you know, you're whining. And do you mean like Dennis being, or all not, of us being all of us being more concerned with firewire than we should be more concerned with some of these other manufacturers should, that aren't you even. You should on focus our on yourself rather than focusing on your competitor. And I'm not saying that about Dennis Jarvis or Shroff or any. I'm, I think yeah. what Dennis Jarvis is and and Shroff have done. I've, I've, it's just like a lot of what's going on with immigration politics right now on both sides. Both sides are being outspoken about it. Like, all right, it's been a problem for a long time. It's great. We, there's a lot of people that disagree with each other, but now we're all there. Are a lot more people are aware of it. So now we're a lot more aware of it. All right. Now you as a business person, you as a craftsman, how can you make yourself better and adapt and move forward? Because times change, you yeah, know, Yeah. in business and in trends and in fashion and in performance and in engineering, everything changes. And you got to be, uh, to be good at what you got to do. You got to be able to adjust with the times. I mean, to me, my biggest challenge is technology. I mean, I know of a shaping machine that's out there right now, south of the equator, we're calling it the robot. This thing does everything and finishes it with a hunter grit. Wow. That's what scares me. Is does it, it sign your name too? <laughs> it routes the fin boxes even. Radical. And that that's the day that that scares me is one day when it's just the push of the button for everything. Yeah. But at the same time, like I know I can market myself to yeah. around that, you know, and that's yeah. what you got to do. You've done a do. great job of that. I mean, yeah. I would suggest that as great a craftsman as you are, you're almost a better business person. You've you've got an aesthetic about your marketing that's incredible, and and there's something behind it which helps yeah. a lot. Yeah, but you've done a good job marketing, and I think that the smart companies can outmarket that, you know, yeah. jackhammer down there. Yeah, and and like again. I appreciate what Mark Price does, and I appreciate what Peter Schaff does, and I appreciate what Dennis Jarvis is doing, and I've chosen to be less of a critic publicly about it. I got my own beliefs, but I, I you know, I want to focus on what I'm doing rather than other people else, and I appreciate the awareness, but also there's such a brotherhood that, you know, just like with all this 
the separation between Democrats and Republicans is probably a bigger gap than it's ever been in our lifetimes. I think it's safe to say, and it's like, why didn't anyone? I have a ton of friends that are complete opposite me politically, religiously, whatever, but I can still roll with them and hang with them at the beach. And I just, and what I learned from that Pucas fire was, you know, you, you think of, you know, there is a lot of surfboard builders that are competitive with each other. I won't, you know, I'm not sharing secrets. I don't want to talk to that guy. He's the enemy or da, da, da. he's my competition, but it's like, what was so neat about the Pucas fire was there's so, there's so many other factories around Spain and France. And when that happened, all those factories reached out and, you know, I chose to stay and I hopped around four different factories a week after that fire. Three days after that fire, I was shaping again. I was going to Euroglass. I was going to another, I was going to uh, shape, uh, Shaper House? Or Shaper House in France. And, you know, and I had offers to go to a ton of other places. I mean, it was just amazing how, you know, we there is a brotherhood in building surfboards, you know, and. You That's know, cool. It if I saw little... Mark Price in the in the bar, like you know, I I'd be happy to buy him a beer. You know, and yeah. Same as Peter Schroff, and that'd be a good laugh. And I'll, <laughs> I don't know, if, you know, I know he wears speedos sometimes, but <laughs> and actually, in Dennis Jarvis, I just I'm actually stoked. I'm trying to meet up with him the next week or two because I I ordered a Fireball fish from him, so oh, cool. he's got it ready to go. I just got to get my butt up cool. to L.A. It's hard for me to cross the Orange Curtain, right? Is, so I on the five you. freeway, <laughs> I hear you. Well, Mark Price brought up something interesting called the price to uh, value ratio. And it basically boils down to, look, the amount of skilled labor it takes to build a Christensen surfboard from you shaping it to Peter spraying it to the guys sanding or to Gary, you know, all your crew to Nanoa, um, your fin guys, it suggests that the price should be higher. Like a custom American-made Fender Stratocaster costs, you know, 15, 16, 1700 bucks, or I can get a Japanese or a Mexican or a Filipino one for a hundred bucks with an amp, but I'm fine paying 1500 bucks for an American made Strat Cause it's, it's got something to it. It's got what your surfboard brand provides, which is quality. How do we get that price to value ratio higher? How do we start to move it? I know we can't just go into Mitch's and go, okay, it's going to be 150 more, but can we start somehow to move the consumer towards a place where he understands that what you're buying is special. Yeah, that is that that that's tricky economics, and I think a lot of people that know my brand know I'm one of the probably top five most expensive brands worldwide. Um, and yeah, it's, surfboards could be a lot more. And you know, I was thinking of thinking about this the other day is that you know. When I, what were the prices of houses when I started shaping surfboards? What were the prices of gas? What was the prices of everything? What were my expenses in my business and my blinks and all that? And what are they now? And if you compare it to other products, like, you know, you and I are in a golf, like, I couldn't believe how much golf clubs are now compared to 10 years ago. I mean, you're not getting a, you're not getting a high level pair of sticks for under 3,500 bucks anymore. You know, back 10 years ago, a high level set of sticks was 1500 bucks um my margins are you know my expenses in 2000 are a third were a third of probably what they are now from blanks to resin costs and let alone overhead insurance etc i mean and i know my my margins are not triple of what they were right you know so there is a there is a bit of a false economy going on with you know our um, keeping up with keeping up with just 
standard inflation rates. I mean, so my price is absolutely correct. The board should be bar. You know, like yeah, if I had um, you know like a high level business person like a Carl Icahn or Dan Loeb come in and he saw how much went into my surfboards, I'm sure he's gonna say, hey, you need to sell these things for five thousand dollars. Who's gonna buy them? And am I gonna sell enough of them to? Yeah, be able to live, be, there. be able to live west of the 15 freeway. You know right. what I mean? In a modest place, it's so. So the consumer's been, I guess, just mod. It's we've just been shaped to believe that that look, I can get a six one clear trifin for let's just say today, your average guy's like, dude, I can get one for five hundred bucks. You know I, what I mean? I Whereas remember going to retail and they're seven. But point is, is that you make a super high quality board that has a ton of a lot of extras involved in it. Yeah. But you're still competing against that consumer that thinks Chris's high quality board should cost the same as this like slam bam. Thank you, ma'am. Six one trifin. Yeah. And mine don't, you know, but this is, I had this, I had this conversation. Matt Bielos is a really good friend of mine and someone who I respect a lot as a person and a shaper. I think he's one of the hands down, one of the best performance surfboard shapers out there. And, and we we spend a lot of time. We both have. We both spend a lot of time in the mountains. And I say, hey man, what if I go? You guys, you guys' prices are way too low, and they haven't changed. And you guys are all within five to fifteen dollars of each other. And I said, you kind of, you guys are giving each other AIDS. You know, <laughs> <laughs> the surfboard, the surfboard industry's got AIDS right now. And I said, what if you Channel Islands, DHD, JS, Rusty. Firewire, you guys all sat down, and to Mark Price's credit, Mark the Firewires, you know they're built, they're yeah, they're pricey, they're up, they're on yeah. the higher end, seven fifty, yeah, they're actually higher than most of the other boards. Yeah. Um, why don't you guys all sit around and have beers, yeah, and shake hands and just say, hey, this year we're all raising our price fifty dollars or a hundred dollars, yeah. That's not neither one of them are going to sell one less surfboard. I mean, think of most servers spend fifty bucks Friday night in the bar. Yeah, you know what I mean. That's not going to change, and no one's getting rich of it. Again, I don't know any shavers that have a Friday in the parking right. lot. You know right. what I mean. So it's safe to say that. And if you guys all just got together and hey, because they all been working on this. At the end of the day, it's about a two hundred dollar margin. Right. <laughs> and they've been working on that model forever. The cost goes up fifty bucks. They just raise the price of the surfboard up fifty bucks. But it's just. Yeah, they never. It's been stuck in that yeah. that formula for so long. It's just like, hey, y'all got to get together and raise your price, and then. What do you think stops them from doing that? Are they afraid of the backyard guy, so to speak? That's like, like are I they can't, really going to lose sales? I can't speak for them, but I think a lot of them think they'll lose sales. I think a lot of them picture themselves as a commodity. Maybe I don't know. It just is there some ego and pride? They just don't want to discuss it with know. each other. I don't think don't so. Know. I think it could happen. I mean, like, why don't hey, yeah. hey, you guys hearing me? I've been here, just get together, go get beers, raise the price fifty or hundred bucks, and another twenty five bucks the next year, and you know, just yeah, it's a standard rate of inflation is what three percent a year, right? Probably more, but yeah, we'll say three. I mean, yeah. that's probably what they're telling us. I think it's more than that, but yeah, I mean, so it's um, and and uh, hey, at the end of the day, too, these surfboards aren't cheap. You know, you've you got. Tom, Dick, and Harry out there pounding the pavement nine to five, you know, and working, you know, working hard to get one surfboard every two years that costs them six hundred fifty bucks. I get it. You yeah. know, it's not a, it's not a, um, it's not a cheap toy. So I'm, I'm sensitive to that too. And, and you know, at the end of the day, I like, 
I want the working class to be able to afford one of my boards. You know, I, I like, I respect the working class. I mean, yeah. I'd much rather have the guy coming in all dirty with dirty work boots on than some freaking trust funder that steps out at Seaside Market at 11 a.m. on a Monday, come to my factory, where's my board? You know, like. <laughs> well, you know, it's funny you bring up the demographic of the, it seems like there's not, um, it seems like there's more of that last type that you just mentioned. Oh, man. And, and I don't begrudge them. Um, but, I don't either. I mean, sometimes I do, but <laughs> but is it, the one demographic that I've noticed is I don't see as many kids. Is that just me? Have you noticed that? Is that something that you can yeah. comment on? I don't see a lot of kids in the waters. There's more like 28 year old dudes that moved here from wherever that just and they're like, I want to learn how to surf. Yeah. And so they go get a Costco softboard, and before you know it, that's all they need. They're like stoked. This is surfing, and they're not going to move up. They're not aspirational to be, you know, a super high performance surfer, or even a guy that wouldn't, you know, go to mainland and surf tubes or whatever. Yeah, it's it's. I mean, you know, you and I were surfing in the '80s a lot, and it seemed like there's always a lot of people our age, you know, when we're like not even teenagers yet that were in the water. Yeah, and. Now it's so rare to see. I'm noticing that. I'm noticing it a lot. And I'm not saying it's a bad thing necessarily. It's just, you know, it's just the way the times are right now. You know, I don't, I don't know. They're more into skateboarding and more into their phones or, you know, demographic. I know you can go, you know, there's certain areas like Orange County where you do see a lot more kids in the water Yeah. than you do here in San Diego. I've, I went to Florida last year and I noticed like, and I, I timed it when there was actually decent waves. And I was like, I remember sitting in the water in Florida going, man, there's a lot more kids in the water here than there is. Right. Good. Yeah. yeah. Here's just different. I mean, where you and I surf, it's just a bunch of 40-year-old farts like me <laughs> out there, you know? Old dogs. Well, Chris, we've said a lot. What did we miss here today? Hmm. You're going to build me an agave dauntless with glass on fins. That's the most important takeaway, I think. How much should that board be? You tell me. I'm I'm willing to pay for your hard work and should all we, your knowledge. Should we tell Mark Price to put the price on it? <laughs> Mark will chime in. He'll <laughs> listen to this and chime in with a price for oh, Scott. I'll enjoy doing it. Um, I don't know what we missed. Um, there's Jeremy Jones. There's the Skip Fry Jeremy Jones. Jeremy Jones. Out, uh, sort I, of out-of-bounds snowboarding that you've been doing a ton of that you're really into. I think with a, uh, for me, I've always just like being diverse and everything. I've never um, put all my eggs in one basket. So it kind of shows on my line, like, you know, from short boards to long boards, to big wave boards to small wave boards to performance to tradition. That's kind of how I do my life. You know, like you mentioned, I do a lot of sports. Um, I think it's just important to, you know, step out of the box and get experience other things. I remember re reading Yvonne Chouinard's book, let me go, let my people go surfing. And there's a quote that stuck with me ever since I read that thing 15 years ago. He said, if you get into something any more than 80%, it becomes an obsession. Mm. And that really stuck with me. And obsessions aren't really healthy, you know, right? even if you're making a living at it. And yeah. I remember I got to that point with surfing where it's like, it's my job. Oh, I didn't, man, I only surfed once today and, and it wasn't healthy. You know what yeah. I mean? So, yeah. So yeah, I, a lot of people know I'm really into snowboarding, and it and it's it's got to be liberating. It is liberating, but it's also helped my surfing, and surfing's helped my snowboarding, and it's helped me my attitude going to work. Just you know, yeah. being able to separate things. Yeah, 
So every time I see a picture of you snowboarding, I just go, God, <laughs> I am envious of that guy. Hate me, hate me. He's, no, I'm stoked for you, but I want to be there with you going down the mountain. Yeah, so I, I do spend a lot of time, and you know, I've been lucky enough. I, I had a little place up there, and I built a shaping room, and so uh, yeah, in the wintertime, I can go up there and still get my work done. And Does Biolas get to go into your shaping bay and he shape will, boards? He's like, I'm not shaping the surfboard when I'm up here. I'm <laughs> that snowboarding. Like, that sounds like Matt. <laughs> Why do you want to work? <laughs> that's right i love that guy yeah he's good all right well chris thanks so much for being on the podcast thanks for having me and um and until next time adios and aloha aloha thanks man that's cool yeah hey i'd love to hear from you um you can shoot me an email scott at surfboardshow.com and also looking for any donations as i hope to continue to bring iconic, influential, and entertaining guests to the show. We accept PayPal, scott at surfboardshow.com. A little bit goes a long ways, and I appreciate any efforts that you can help us with in that regard. Regardless, thanks for listening. We appreciate your listenership, and we hope to get some sponsors here shortly. Thanks again, and until next time, adios and aloha.